Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. We'll be finishing up this uh, very powerful chapter this morning, God willing. We're going to begin in verse 54. you find that on page 883 in the Pew Bible. And uh, while you're finding your way there, and I do encourage you to have God's Word open this morning, we're going to be covering quite a number of verses. Uh, our brother John was praying for um, uh, Brian and Debbie McIntyre, who lead uh, West Africa Mercy Ministry. They're actually going to be here with us uh, the last or the first weekend in March for our missions conference. So every two years we host a missions conference. M- Michelle Milburn's coming out from California, also going to join us, a number of our local missionaries. And we're excited for that. It's a Friday night, Saturday morning to lunch, and then, of course, Sunday morning. We hope that you could be part of that. You'll certainly be hearing more information about that, but that's usually a great highlight and a wonderful encouragement not only to us, but to the missionaries in which we support. So I just want to make you aware of that. It's coming up, and I certainly am excited for that. So here we are in Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 54. Hear now the word of God. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. When they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and and they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Our Father, we're thankful for your word. and ask, ask that you would help us to consider it truly and that it would impact our lives. Our desire is to hear from you, even as we have listened already to the 
words from Ezekiel, how you spoke to him so powerfully. Will you not likewise speak to us today through the word in which we consider? We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. It's the uh, Oxford scientist uh, Richard Dawkins who wrote his best-selling book, The God Delusion. I looked it up on Amazon yesterday. It has 3,500 reviews, 4.4 stars, uh, a, a very renowned book. And Dawkins has argued in this book that if you believe in any God, you are, according to him, you have, according to him, committed intellectual high treason. And so you ought not to believe in any God, but in particular, if you believe in the God of the Bible, that's far worse. For Dawkins says of the God of the Bible, let me just simply quote him, the God of the Bible is a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindicative, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, pestilential, sadomasochist, a capriciously malevolent bully. That's an interesting description of God, I would say. Uh, I find it particularly frightening in many ways. At the same time, fascinating that someone feels so comfortable, if you will, that they can render such a verdict on God. And Dawkins, of course, not just denying his existence, he does that, but he, it's his character that he judges. Dawkins evidently sees himself as a moral superior to God himself, that we have attained some intellectual prowess and righteous supremacy. We are able, therefore, to render a guilty verdict on God himself. Well, of course, Dawkins is not the first to judge God, as you know. He's not alone in this. God himself was placed on trial 2,000 years ago. Not, not figuratively, literally, God was on trial. And the Lord Jesus Christ, in fact, trials both civic and religious. There are six trials in all, if you put them together. Three religious, three uh, in front of the government, in which Jesus is accused, Jesus is judged, and Jesus is condemned to die. And it's this trial that we want to focus on this morning, particularly, particularly the religious one. But it's not the only trials you see in this passage that we're going to consider. There are actually two, aren't there? We see the Lord Jesus, of course, but Peter is on trial as well. In fact, both trials include accusations, both include confessions, both trials are pressure-packed, both and on a terrible note. So they're similar in many ways, but they're not similar in their entirety. And as you will see in a moment, the two defendants, if you will, uh, could not have acted more different than one another. And so my hope this morning as we look at these two trials is that we, we begin with Peter and that we'll actually see ourselves in Peter's trial. That if God is willing, we'll be able to relate to him. And see our own failings of the Lord. And then once we're feeling pretty bad about ourselves, if you will, if I can put it that way, we get to look at Jesus and see his amazing love for us in his willingness to endure this trial on our behalf. 
So, okay, let's, let's, let's begin in Peter's trial. Look in verse 54. It says, then they seized him, that's Jesus, and led him away, uh, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. Now, of course, we've been in Luke for quite some time. We've seen Peter uh, from the very beginning. And, and uh, if you're anything like me, uh, you're, it's hard not to love Peter, isn't it? I mean, Peter is um, a, a very entertaining fellow. He's very interesting. He's very provocative. He's, he's always opening his mouth. And, and as some have said, only to change feet, right? Peter just kind of says whatever comes to his mind. But, you know, we give Peter a hard time. We have to remember Peter has, has said some amazing things. It was Peter who got a glimpse of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he said, depart from me, go away from me, for I am, you know what? He says, I'm a sinful man. That was Peter. And it was Peter who, who speaks on behalf of the apostles when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Remember, it was Peter who said, you are the Christ, the Son of God. It was, it was likewise just moments later when Jesus says, okay, well, please understand they're going to kill me. It was Peter who said, no, that's not going to happen. Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. It was Peter on the stormy night called out to the shadowy figure out upon the water. Lord, if it is you, tell me to come out to you on the water. It was Peter, I think, to his eternal credit in John 6. When everybody else was leaving, Jesus looks at his apostles and says, Will you two leave me? Remember, it was Peter who said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. It was Peter who was in the upper room when Jesus rose to wash the apostles' feet, who protested, saying, you shall never wash my feet, only to say just seconds later, Lord, not just not my feet, but my hands and my head as well. I like how Pastor Kent Hughes describes Peter. He says, when I think of Peter, I imagine a broad-shouldered, loud, extroverted man who is always sweating. <laughs> it's a good image, isn't it? Clarence McCartney explained Peter's role for us many years ago, saying his impulsive deeds, his frequent questions, his eager exclamations and confessions, the praise and honor and rebukes that were bestowed upon him, his sometimes manly, sometimes cowardly acts, his oaths, his bitter tears, all this makes Peter the great companion and the great instructor of his fellow men and his fellow Christians. And I, I think uh, uh, today, as we look at, at Peter we have much to learn from him. I think in, in many ways, I've already alluded to, he's a mirror for us to kind of gaze upon ourselves to see what struggles that we have as we see them in Peter. In fact, before we get to this event, you recall that Jesus has already interacted with Peter this fateful evening, warning Peter. Remember what he said in verse 31. He said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brother. So, Peter, you're going to fail me, but here's my, I've prayed for you, so you're not going to fail me completely, and you're going to come back, Jesus says. Well, of course, Peter will hear nothing of that, will he? For Peter goes on and protests, as you see in verse 33, saying, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Peter, Peter refuses to admit his own weakness, full of confidence as always, refuses to see his need. And so the Lord persists with him. In verse 34, he prophesies and says, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And this is where the conversation ends. 
It's kind of easy for me to kind of imagine what, what must have happened that Peter, in my mind at least, Peter kind of, kind of drops it and kind of sulks in the, com- in the corner of the room thinking to himself, well, I'll show you. Now, you'll see. I won't deny you. And, and it seems to me that he, he, he's showing how committed he is just an hour later when he's swinging his sword around, lopping off people's ears. Right? I will defend you. I'll kill for you, Jesus. And what does he receive from that? Not the commendation that he thought, I trust. But he gets rebuked by the one he's defending. Enough of this, Jesus says. Put it away. What are you doing? It's not who I am. It's not what I've come to do. My people don't wield the sword. And they're, to make matters worse, after being rebuked, Jesus is bound and carried away by an armed guard, perhaps as many as 600 people. At this point, the Gospels tell us all others, all the apostles fled. Everyone with Jesus fled, except Peter. He followed, as you see in verse 54. And they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following now, you know what? He wasn't following right now. He wasn't like running up, hey, wait for me. He's following at a distance, okay? He's maybe a couple hundred yards behind, but he's following nevertheless. The others weren't. Of course, we have reason to believe that John would eventually show up. His family has connections with the high priest. But it was Peter who followed initially and followed him all the way to the courtyard of the high priest, which was strangely, maybe around 2 a.m. at this time, packed and while Jesus was examined inside, you see verse 54, it says they take him into the, into the home, into the high priest's home, and there Peter's waiting in the courtyard. And I, I trust this must have taken incredible courage, don't you think, just to be there all by yourself, um, right? I, this is, I think, one of Peter's finer moments, at least initially. Peter's trying to show himself to be faithful. He's, he's, he's trying to seek uh, to keep his promise. Everyone else falls away. He'll go to prison for Jesus. I'm going to die for Jesus or so he thought. And so he draws himself down by the fire, as you know, verse 55. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. On this chilly night, uh, the apostle finds his company amidst the enemy. Now the enemy, in Peter's case, was not a menacing guard, however. It was not an intimidating priest, but it was a servant girl. You see in verse 56, then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light, looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him. His fire begins to build up, and Luke says she's staring at him, and she finally recognizes him and says, this man was with Jesus. Now, it seems to me it's hard to get a less intimidating adversary than a servant girl. Right? This is, it's not a man in a very patriarchal society, but a woman, but, but not really a woman, but a girl, and not, not even a girl with powerful parents. I mean, this is a servant girl. This is the girl that changes the chamber pots, and, and there she comes against Peter, and Peter's courageous response is found in verse 57, but he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. Peter offers in his defense a clear an undeniable lie. At this point from the other Gospels, we know Peter would get up from the fire and he would kind of withdraw into the shadows as the pressure begins to mount. But evidently he needs a better hiding place for we see in verse 58, 
And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you are also one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. You see, his first denial was knowing Jesus. Secondly, he denies being his disciple. Well, a little while later, evidently they're thinking about this man, maybe talking about him, maybe even talking to him, and they notice his accent, as you see in verse 59, an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. Of course, you know Galilee is up in the north, far away, maybe a four days journey by foot, and now they're down in Jerusalem, and and. And here Peter is down in the south. And what's a, what's a Galilean down, down in here? Of course, Jesus is from Galilee, and here's another Galilean. And it's like saying, you're a Canadian, right? What are you doing down in America? And, and, and Peter says, I'm not a Canadian, eh? Right? Okay. Uh, and and he, he denies. Look at verse 60. He, he, but Peter says, man, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. I, I don't even, what, what are we even talking about? Who is this Jesus guy? I don't even know what's going on. The first man to look in Jesus and say, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And now he says, I, I, don't, I don't even know him. In fact, it's far worse. Luke is being charitable. I think it is Mark's account who most people think Peter was the source material for Mark. And Peter's not so charitable with himself. Peter says on this third denial, he called down curses. When it says he called down curses, it doesn't mean he's swearing He's to curse is to curse someone or something. Now, the way that it's put in Mark, he, does, he, he is not cursing himself, and therefore there's only one other option. Most commentators recognize it. He's cursing Jesus. He starts to curse Jesus. And, and you can tell why, right? Because if, you're, you're, if this man's your master and you're his disciple, certainly you're not going to curse him. So in order to prove that he's not a disciple... He, he says, I'm going to show you, and I'm going to begin to curse this man named Jesus. I will do not deny you, even if I have to die with you, he said just hours earlier. What does the proverb say, remember? Pride comes before the fall, and fall Peter did. Here's a man who's totally unprepared. He's prayerless. He's presumptuous. He seeks to follow the Lord in his own strength, and he begins to crumble under the pressure, and Jesus knows it, as you see in verse 60, reading on. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord. It seems in the midst of his trial, Peter's oblivious to the fact that Jesus has now been moved out of the house, perhaps being moved through the courtyard, and, and in the middle of this, Jesus is walking through. It's at that moment the rooster calls while Peter is still cursing Jesus. And Christ pauses and he looks at Peter. He looks into his soul. And Peter's mind begins to recall the words that the Lord had said. And it, it sends Peter's feet running from the courtyard. And Peter's eyes let loose this torrent of bitter tears. As we see in verse 61, he remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Can you imagine what that that look from Christ must have been like. I mean, while the words were leaving Peter's mouth, the rooster crows and the Lord looks. 
And you try to even put yourself there, put yourself in that, in that courtyard and watch our Lord being bound gaze at Peter. I was, our family was reviewing this passage last night, and I asked my kids, what kind of look do you think it was? And some suggested maybe it was a how dare you look. Maybe it was a I told you look, I told you so look. I don't think it was either of those. I think the way that the Lord was looking at Peter, I think it was a look of compassion. I think that seems to be in accordance with the Lord I know. I think it was a look of tender mercy. I think as the Lord heard that rooster crow, his eyes went looking for Peter. And, and, and he wanted Peter to remember what he had said. He wanted Peter to remember his earlier prediction. Now remember, God, the Lord not only predicted that Jesus would deny him, he predicted what? That you will come back. When you have turned again, you will strengthen your brothers. Remember, Peter, my words, all of them. This is not the end for you. And I, I think it's, the Lord is in a gaze trying to bring Peter back to him. I, I, in fact, I think it's amazing in, in, at all that Jesus is thinking of Peter at this time. It was J.C. Ryle who said a couple hundred years ago, surrounded by bloodthirsty men in the full prospect of horrible outrages, an unjust trial, and a painful death, the Lord Jesus yet found time to think kindly of his poor, erring disciple. In the middle of Peter's greatest failure, Jesus loved him as he loves you and I, even in the midst of our sin. I wonder... Do you ever fail him? You ever fail the Lord? Maybe you did last night. Maybe you did this morning. Maybe sometime this week. The Lord gives us this picture of sin and it's piercing Peter's heart and he runs out and his face is in his hands and he's weeping bitterly thinking, what have I done? I think God will want us to understand from this passage that sin is bitter. Do you see the bitterness of sin here? And I wonder, how is that, that hidden sin that you keep going back to periodically, how is that treating you? I wonder, how is that sin that you've confessed but still have not repented of? Is that living up to its promises? Is, that, is your sin providing you the joy that, you, that it keeps telling you it will bring in your life? If your boss stopped paying you, would you continue to work? I imagine you would not. And yet, why do we keep at this sin? It keeps offering to pay up, and it never does. And we think, okay, maybe this time is different. Maybe it will actually pay up. Maybe it will actually give me the joy that I want. And you need to understand for this passage, it's seeking to kill you. It's seeking to drive you from the Lord. It's seeking to break you as it did Peter. My friends, sin is bitter. I think we would do well to learn that from this passage. But we'd also do well to understand that remorse is not repentance. You, you see here Peter's weeping over his sin. I think many people weep over their sin, don't they? In fact, remember, it was just, just last week we considered uh, another failure of Jesus' apostle Judas. If you read Judas' story, he, he also will be broken man because of his sin. He will weep too. Both men fail Jesus. Both men are broken because of it. I think that's common. I, don't, I think sooner or later, if you live a lifestyle of sin, it's going to catch up to you, and there's going to be some brokenness in your heart. Maybe, maybe not broken over the actual sin, but certainly the consequences. People get broken. They feel remorse. But please understand, weeping is not enough. Remorse is not repentance. 
Remorse may lead to tears, but it doesn't lead to change. Repentance leads to tears, but it doesn't stop there. It leads to a a new life. It leads to an altered path. You know, Judas's remorse just led him farther from God. It led him out into the dark, into despair. Again, J.C. Ryle says, remorse can make a man miserable like Judas, but it can do no more. It does not lead him to God. But Peter... He too wept in anguish, but as he did, something died in Peter, don't you think? Arrogance died in that man. Presumption died in him. Self-reliance died in him. And Peter emerges from the dark, and he would never be the same. Do you know within weeks, Peter is going to be preaching in front of thousands of people, including servant girls. And he is going to be publicly proclaiming that he belongs to Christ. You know what will happen to him as a result? He'll be thrown in prison, be released, go out and preach again, thrown back in prison, beat a couple times, released, go out and preach, thrown back in prison. You know how Peter's life will eventually end, as the Lord predicts in John 21? He'll be killed for Christ. In fact, history tells us he was crucified upside down. You see, Peter did keep his promise, didn't he? Even if I have to go to prison for you, even if I have to die for you, he would. He became a new man because of repentance. I wonder, when you sin, are you repenting? Not not do you feel bad over it, but do do, do do you move from that weeping into life change? Is is there change in your life? Maybe, maybe, Maybe you don't weep at all. Maybe you don't feel bad at all over our sin. That might be a good start. When's the last time you felt broken because of the sin? When's the last time you stopped shrugging your shoulders, oh, that's just the way I am, and think, what have I done to my Lord who has died for me, and your heart is broken because of it? And then, what do you do after the tears are dry? Is there change? This is what Peter shows us. There is power in being brought through sin into repentance In fact, and there are, by the way, plenty of opportunities to repent in light of the fact that our trials are ongoing. I think the third lesson from Peter's trial that we should learn is that you are on trial, just like Peter, and your trial is ongoing. I think Peter is very helpful, and he shows us that you don't have to be in court to be on trial, that that life is our trial, and that we, we... we have opportunities to either identify with Christ or we have opportunities to deny Christ. I would suggest to you, my brothers and sisters, that the true test of your commitment to, to Jesus is not the promises you make to him in private. It is the witness you make to him in public. I feel like so often we are constantly promising God things. You know, I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to start praying. I'm, you know, I'm going to start treating my, my wife better. I'm going to start doing this. I'm going to start doing that. Right? That's all good. But Peter made plenty of promises in private. But for some reason, when Peter was in public, he, for the first time, it seems like he was at, at a loss for words. And he certainly had nothing to say about Jesus. The real test of our commitment to him is when we're under pressure. Do we take a stand for Christ or do we deny him? I think we probably deny him when we talk about, you know, I'm involved in church or my faith is important to me, but never get to the point where we mention the name Jesus. 
I think we probably deny him when our lives are so much like the world, it's impossible to tell us different from how we live and how we speak. I think we, we deny Christ when, when we do something or say something that we should not in order to curry the, the, fa- the favor and the, the praise of other people. I think we, we deny Jesus when someone's bad-mouthing him or bad-mouthing our faith, and we don't say anything because, after all, we don't want to force our religion on anyone, right? Which is another way of saying, I think, you could go to hell for all I care as long as I don't have to say something that makes me feel awkward and talk about Jesus. I think we deny Jesus when we say, you are my Lord, but we refuse to obey him and do what he calls us to do, to publicly identify with him, perhaps even in baptism. The real test of discipleship is not what you say to Jesus when you're alone in the garden. It's what you say when you're out in the world, when you're on trial. And Peter shows us it's not, not in the big events. It's in the everyday events. It's in the simple conversations you'll have this afternoon and, and, and this week with coworkers and neighbors and friends and family. Our trial is ongoing. You understand that? We're in the same boat as Peter. And the rooster may call for you too, just as it did for him. You ever, you ever see a, a, a weather vane on top of a barn, usually an animal on top of those? It's often a, a rooster, isn't it? And uh, uh, you, you, the, the, you put it up there up high, and, and you could, the whole point is, right, is you could, you could see which way the wind's blowing, is the storm going to come in, and so forth. And that makes sense. You're in a farm. You've got a barn. You've got roosters. You put it all together, and, and there you go. But you know that, that, didn't, that tradition didn't start with barns, I discovered a couple weeks ago that the weather vanes used to be put on top of church steeples. And the first roosters that we ever know to be on weather vanes were on the steeples of church. After all, the steeple would be the highest point in town. And so it was like the weather app back then, right? And wherever you were, you just kind of looked up to the church steeple, and there's the weather channel. You know what's, going to, what's happening, right? And, and, and yet they, the church decided to put a, a rooster on their steeple precisely because of this story. To remind us as we go about town... As we interact with our neighbors, I need to be true to my Lord. As I buy and shop and converse, I must not deny him. The rooster is watching. I must be faithful. I wonder maybe the next time you, you see a weather vane or a barn or hear a rooster call, that might help you. That God might bring this to you. God, help me to be faithful on my trials. Of course, Peter, as I mentioned, is not the only one on trial and uh, I, I think uh, if Peter helps us see ourselves, the Lord helps us see his majesty and love. So consider, secondly, this morning, Jesus' trial, as we see in verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They bl- also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. This terrible beating that our Lord received on our behalf, we're we're actually, God willing, going to consider next week. But it might be helpful for you to understand, it actually took place after two trials already. Luke doesn't tell us about those trials. They're kind of like pre pre-trial hearings. One was before Annas, the former high priest. The other before Caiaphas, the current high priest. 
And then both men found him guilty. Both men found him deserving to die. And they've wanted to kill him for a while, as we've seen. But they need this official verdict. They need an official trial before the Sanhedrin in order for it to be legitimate. And that has to be, according to their customs, in, during the daytime. And so you see, and then pursue that in verse 66. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And so here Jesus is, is being bound, and, and, and maybe it's 5 a.m., maybe it's 6 a.m. The sun is, is rising. The torch is undoubtedly still flickering off the walls in the judgment hall as these 71 religious leaders, all in their long robes and their jaws clenched and their eyes full of rage, stand there in judgment of Jesus as he stands bound in the middle of all of them his nose bloody and his face swollen, his eyes bruised. It's been a very long night. He's exhausted and dehydrated, and he has been treated unimaginably poorly. And there he is. The Lord goes on trial with, before all these Bible scholars. And the whole trial is going to kind of turn on the ident- identity of Jesus. Who is he? Is he the Messiah? Is he the Son of God? And if he is not, by the way, this would be a good time to, to let everybody know. Don't you think? I mean, these are not idle threats. These people are not messing around. They have already beat you mercilessly. They are, they are, they are wanting to kill you. And so if, if you are not the son of God, you, it, would, it would do you well, Jesus, to let everybody know that at this moment. So I want you to consider Jesus' testimony about himself. And really, the, the trial moves through three different ways to identify Jesus. It begins by pointing out that Jesus is the Christ, as you know, their question in verse 67. If you are the Christ, tell us. Now, part of me, when I read that, you know, that's a good question, isn't it? And you kind of hope they wish they asked it in a different, with a different heart, right? I mean, you wish they were saying, please, will you tell us, are you the Messiah? But of course, this is a trap, isn't it? It's, they're trying to get him. Now, now, of course, he's the Christ. We know that. I mean, he's Jesus Christ, right? Isn't that his last name? Um, of course, well, no, it's not his last name, right? Christ is a title. It's a messianic title. Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. And there was a Messiah or a Christ that was promised who would come and reign and be a king. And so they're asking Jesus, are you the promised king? Now, the reason they're asking is they want to bring him before Pilate and be able to present him as a revolutionary. In fact, they're going to do so. Look up in chapter 23 and verse 2. We'll consider this next time, God willing. But you notice they begin to accuse him. This is before Pilate, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So they're trying to get, okay, admit that you're the Christ, and therefore we can condemn you. Now, if you've been paying attention to Luke's gospel at all, Luke's already settled this over and over again. Remember when he was born, the trembling shepherds being confronted by the angel who announced today in the city, in the town of David, the city of David, a savior has been born to you who is, what is it? Christ the Lord, right? And then presented in the temple some weeks later, and it's Simeon who takes him up in his arms, and the Bible says it has been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he's seen the Lord's Christ. It was in Luke chapter 9 that Peter confesses, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And a week earlier, he wrote into Jerusalem amidst all these messianic praises, Jesus is the Christ. Luke's been shouting this from the very beginning. There's no ifs about it. That's who he is. He is the Christ. And so they come to 
him, and they say, are you the Christ? But Jesus' answer is very interesting, isn't it, as you see in verse 67. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe me. Jesus understands what, what they're trying to do. They're trying to get him to condemn himself. He says, if I told you, you, you wouldn't believe what I said. In fact, he's already, he's already pro- provided enough evidence. It's miracle after miracle. If you, uh, he just raised a man, according to John's gospel, uh, shortly before this from the dead in front of hundreds of people. They all knew it. it was, the whole, t- whole place was talking about it. They, they've seen his miracles. And if they don't believe his works, how, why are they going to believe his words? The evidence is enough for them. It's enough for us. His beauty, his wisdom, his compassion, his power, his righteousness, his miraculous activity, his resurrection from the dead. I, I, I firmly believe that in almost every case, people do, if people reject Jesus, it is not because there's not evidence to believe or enough evidence to believe. It's because they refuse to accept the evidence before them. And I think that's what Jesus is saying. So you've already made up your minds, haven't you? You won't believe if I tell you. In fact, he goes on and says in verse 68, and if I ask you, you will not answer. Right? In other words, if I asked you, do you believe I'm the Christ? You won't even give me a straight answer. And so Jesus is, is somewhat elusive in this question, but it's not all that Jesus says. He goes on and clearly affirms that he is the promised son of man. And Jesus, secondly, is the son of man, as you see in verse 69. But from now on, he said, the son of man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Now, when Jesus calls himself the son of man, he's not saying, I'm a human. That's, it's not a reference to being, okay, I'm, I was born from a man, I'm a son of man, I'm a, I'm a human being. No, this is Jesus' favorite title of himself, and it's, it's, he does it to refer to a very famous prophecy in Daniel 7. When there was someone who looked like a man, a son of man, and yet this, this man appeared before God in heaven. Let me show you this verse. You'll put that on the screen for me. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days. That's God. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And Jesus says, that's me. The, the one who appears before the ancient of days, the one who receives a dominion, the one who receives a kingdom over the entire world, that's me. And you, you may kill me, but soon you will see me at the right hand of God in power, reigning forever. Not only am I the Christ, I'm a far greater Christ than you ever imagined, for I am the Son of Man himself. That's what Christ is affirming. Now, one of, the, one of the ways in which you study the Bible that I find particularly helpful is when I read something like that, a question that I often ask is, well, why did he say this and not something else? Because you think about all the ways that Jesus could have described himself, even pulling in from the Old Testament. He could have said, you know, I am the, I am the seed of the woman who's come to slay the serpent. Or, you know, I, I, am the, I am the descendant of Abraham who will bring blessings to the nations. Or I, I am the, the prophet like Moses who will come and bear truth. I, I'm, the, I'm the true temple. I'm the faithful high priest on the Passover lamb. I mean, he could have done any of this. And yet, in, in front of these men, he says, I want you to understand something. I am the son of man who will come in power and judgment. And I think the reason why, though I can't be sure, is that you recognize where Jesus is. 
he's being judged. And he wants them to know that, please understand the irony of this event, that the judge of all the world is being judged by you. And you need to understand that you think you're superior to me. You think you're the judges. I'm the true judge. And so beware. Because regardless of your verdict, I'm coming back. And I'm coming in power. And so for all the Richard Dawkins in the world who feel superior enough to judge God, for all the Sanhedrins in the world who feel like they can render verdict upon him, one day they will stand before this one who has dominion over the entire world. Now they clearly understand what he's saying. They know that this is a claim to divinity and they, rather than rejoicing, they kind of lick their lips in perverse glee and think we've got him. Let's make it absolutely clear. So they ask in verse 70. And he, uh, excuse me, yeah. So they said to him, are you the son of God then? Is that what you're saying? Are you telling us you're the son of God? And we see thirdly in this trial, Jesus affirms this truth as well. Uh, right? They, they, they want to know the answer. Is this who you are? Of course, we know the answer. Mary was told, you will give birth to a son and he will be called the son of the most high. When he was baptized, a voice came from heaven and saying, you are my son whom I love. Just, just days later, he was out in the wilderness, and the devil came and tempted him. And, and over and over again, the devil says, if you are the son of God, then do change these ro- rocks into bread and so forth. And, and, and then Jesus begins his ministry, and he keeps being encountered with demon after demon. And the demons were coming out of Manny, according to the Bible, shouting, you are the son of God. And he goes to the mountain, and the cloud of God comes and descends and speaks from the cloud. And he says to uh, Peter and James and John, this is my son. I have chosen him. Listen to him. So everything that Luke has shown us has prepared us. Mary knows he's the son of God. Uh, the angels know he's the son of God. The devil knows he's the son of God. The demons know he's the son of God. The apostles know he's the son of God. So they say, are you the son of God? He answers, verse 70, and he said to them, you say that I am which is simply a way of saying, I am, as you say, the Son of God. In other words, you are quite right. In fact, some of your translations put it that way. But please understand there has been no other religious leader ever to make such claims. No, and every religious leader upon this earth says, it's not about me, it's about him up there, don't focus on me. And Jesus here comes, he says, I'm the divine Son of Man. I am the Son of God. They are hearing what he's saying, and that's enough for them, as you see in verse 71. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his old lips. Guilty, they say. Blasphemer, they say. So blind are they that the truth from Jesus' own mouth is what condemns Jesus in their minds. He has convicted himself. Right? They, they cannot convict him. There's not evidence to do so. The only way they can convict him is if Jesus convicts him with his own testimony, and he gives it, doesn't he? He gives it, why? So he can go to the cross for you. That's why he went. You know, many, many people, they'll read the Gospels, and they say, you know, I don't know about this whole death and resurrection thing, but I, I like Jesus when he's nice with children and standing up for women. That's the Jesus I like. He's helping the poor people and, and healing people. And, and, and of course, Jesus did all that, and he did far more than that. But please understand, that's not why they killed him. 
They didn't beat him and flog him and crucify him because he was a nice man who you know, helped the poor. They did so because he claimed to be the son of God. Now the question is, is he telling the truth? Right? Is he the son of God? Is he, is he really at this moment, as he said, at the right hand of God in, uh, God in heaven? As I, I think, my friends, that let's, let's be honest. We have to come to a point where we either say, have enough courage to say, yes, I believe he is, or no, I think he's a liar. But I don't, I don't see any other option. He either is telling her the truth, and that changes everything in your life, or he's a liar, and, and we shouldn't pay him any attention. He's not a good man, not worthy of our attention. I mean, they, they're going to lay him down, and they're going to drive spikes through his hands and his feet. They're going to strip him naked. They're going to hoist him on the cross. They're going to mock him. They're going to spit on him. They're going to curse him in front of his own mother because he claimed to be the son of God. If he's lying, this would be a really foolish way to, reason to lie. What does he gain by claiming this? He clearly believed this is who he was, knowing that it would send him to the cross. And the reason he did that is for you, isn't it? And it's for me. It's for our gain. Please understand that Jesus simply did not die unjustly. It's just not another example like Martin Luther King Jr., who just was a, a, a man doing great good and cut down in the prime of his life. And isn't that unjust? That's not what's happening here. Clearly, this is unjust. But he died substitutionally. He died the death that we deserve to die. He died in our, our own place. There's an old story that perhaps you've heard. After the Civil War, there was a, a farmer who was kneeling at a soldier's grave in Nashville, Tennessee, bystander came by and asked him, is, is that your, your son's grave? The farmer said, no, I, I have seven children. They're all, all doing well, all young. I have a wife, all living on my poor farm in Illinois. I was drafted into the Union Army, and despite the great hardship it would cause to my family, I was required to serve. But on the morning I was to depart, the man who now lies in this grave, my neighbor's oldest son, came over and offered to take my place in the war. And the story goes, when the farmer stepped away, the bystander noticed he had written something on the gravestone. He died for me. Well, that's our story, isn't it? That's the Christian story. We who fail him, we who deny him with our words and our lives at times, he died for me. you believe that? In fact, can we say that together? Is that okay? Can you say that with me? He died for me. That's your testimony, Christian. And I pray for my, brother, my friend here that may not recognize that yet. Maybe God is stirring your heart. And that maybe he would bring you to faith and you would despair of your own righteousness like Peter was forced to see. And that you would come and you would find salvation in the Son of Man, the Son of God, Jesus the Christ, who died for you. There's two very dramatic trials, isn't it? Very similar in some ways, very different in others. You notice Jesus, by the way, was confronted by the most powerful men in Israel and he stands strong. 
Peter's confronted by a middle school girl, and he crumbles. And Jesus only tells the truth, and that gets himself killed. Peter only lies to save his own hide. Everything that Jesus predicted, the mocking, the beating, Peter's denial, the trial, it all came true. Everything that Peter predicted, I will never deny you, and if I have to go to prison, proved to be false. And we see at the end, Jesus is defeated through no fault of his own. And at the same time, Peter is defeated through his fault alone. You put those together, it reminds me of one of my favorite verses that Paul ever penned in 2 Timothy 2, verse 13. You would do well to think of it this week. He said, for when we are faithless, he remains faithful. That to me sounds like the essence of Christianity. That, of course, we want to be faithful, don't we? we? We want to remember the rooster and stand firm. But there's another symbol. We don't find roosters on top of church steeples anymore, do we? There's another symbol that is up there, and it's the cross. So the rooster might remind us that we need to be true to him, but the cross reminds us of the one to whom we are to be true to, that he is always faithful to us, faithful even to the point of the cross, even when we are faithless to him. And so I want to leave you with this thought this morning, my Christians, that every time you fail him, and chances are, if you're anything like me, you'll do so this week. Every time the the cock crows in your life, there is a cross welcoming you back. Even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. Our Father in heaven, we are eternally in the debt of our Lord. We want to be more like him. We want to value him so much that we could care less what happens in our life in this world and what people think of us. Boldly proclaim. Maybe, maybe you would just, today, you take what we've done today and produce this in our life. That we would leave here a little more bold for Jesus. And that we would be aware of the opportunities to testify to him and the temptations that we have to deny him. And in the midst of it all, we would be rejoicing that he is and forever shall be faithful to us. And that's our only hope. And we thank you for it. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen.